new fiction film tells the story of Black Panther Fred Hampton and the FBI informant who betrayed him. Now we hear from the documentary makers who told the real story in Eyes on the Prize. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The Hollywood film Judas and the Black Messiah opened in January to strong reviews. The actor Daniel Kaluuya won a Golden Globe Award for portraying Fred Hampton. Director Shaka King has said that documentary films played a key role in his research. One of those films is The Murder of Fred Hampton that captured the young leader when he was still alive preaching a multiracial revolution. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just it's, it's a byproduct of capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. In 1969, the police and the Panthers were battling across the country. Gunfights had left casualties on both sides. At the age of 21, Hampton had already been jailed on charges of robbing ice cream with a harsh sentencing. He knew his life was in danger. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die what I was in the, in the thing that I was born for. I believe that I'm going to be able to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the international revolutionary proletarian struggle. And I hope that each one of you will be able to die in the international proletarian revolutionary struggle even in people living in it. And I think that struggle is going to come. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? In December 1969, Chicago police raided Hampton's apartment in the middle of the night, spraying machine gun fire while he and others were sleeping. Ballistic tests later showed that the police fired more than 90 shots and the Panthers just one. Hampton's 19-year-old fiance, Deborah Johnson, now named Akua and Jerry, was eight months pregnant and sleeping next to him. She's interviewed in the murder of Fred Hampton, recalling the night of the raid. They pushed uh, me and the other brother by the uh, kitchen door and told us to face the wall. Heard a pig say, he's barely alive, he'll barely make it. I assumed they were talking about Chairman Fred. Then they started shooting the pigs, they started shooting, up, shooting again. I heard a sister scream. They stopped shooting. The pig said, He's good and dead now. The pigs running around laughing. They were really happy, you know, talking about Chairman Fred's dead. The murder of Fred Hampton came out in 1971. It documents how law enforcement officials repeatedly lied about what happened that night. But there were further truths to be uncovered. Two decades later, another documentary shined a new light on the case. I know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Eyes on the Prize is a 14-part series on the struggle for black rights in America. The history spans from the 1950s to the 1980s. 
Its first season was broadcast on PBS in 1987, followed by a second season in 1990. In this discussion, we're going to concentrate on episode 12, subtitled A Nation of Law with a Question Mark, that covers the story of Fred Hampton. Over the years, investigators gained a deeper understanding of how the FBI supported the raid that killed him. FBI leader J. Edgar Hoover was deeply fearful of charismatic leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Hoover gave a directive to prevent the rise of any new messiah that could electrify a black movement. The FBI created a counterintelligence program known as COINTELPRO, to surveil and stir conflict inside any group they deemed a threat. One journalistic feat of Eyes on the Prize was to get an interview with the FBI informant who had befriended Fred Hampton and betrayed him. The Judas was named William O'Neill. In his late teens, O'Neill had been arrested for crossing state lines in a stolen car. The FBI made him a deal. He could stay out of prison if he would spy for them. He reported to FBI agent Roy Mitchell. O'Neill explains his relationship with Mitchell in his interview. So when he asked me to join the Black Panther Party, and he used terms, he never used the word informant. He always said, you're working for me. And I associated him as the FBI. So all of a sudden, I was working for the FBI, which in my mind at that point I associated with being an FBI agent. So I felt good about it. I felt like I was working undercover for the FBI, doing something good for the finest police organization in America. And so I was pretty proud. I've always been curious how the filmmakers got O'Neill to go on the record. After his cover was blown in the early 70s, he had gone into the Federal Witness Protection Program and taken an alias. How did they even find him? Last weekend, I brought together four members of the Eyes on the Prize team for a Zoom call. Two of my guests were directors on that episode, Louis Messiah and Terry K. Rockefeller, and two served as researchers, Bennett Singer and Noland Walker. The person we can't interview is the creator of Eyes on the Prize, Henry Hampton, no relation to Fred. Henry founded the production company Blackside in Boston and assembled a diverse, gender-balanced crew that was groundbreaking. Henry died in 1998 at the age of 58. My guests join me from locations across the country. Louis Messiah runs Scribe Video Center in Philadelphia. Terry K. Rockefeller is in Boston. Bennett Singer in Los Angeles. And Nolan Walker is a co-programmer of PBS's Independent Lens in the Bay Area. They all look back on their time working with Henry Hampton as formative. Noland explains what working at Blackside meant to him. I finished uh, college at Howard University in uh, 1987 uh, when the first Eyes on the Prize came on television that spring. And it was like a lifeline into a possibility for not just myself, but a, a connection to the world. So in so many ways, uh, working with Louie, working with Terry, Sam Pollard, Lillian Benson at the beginning of her uh, kind of editorial uh, ascent, um, it, and people like John Els, it really was 
a way into the world that was so different than was be, than what was being presented uh, in mainstream media. Certainly, uh, there's only at that time. You know, I had met Spike Lee, was in a car with him, and uh, on the way to Dallas Airport, and tried to do my pitch to Spike then. And I was like, "This is not going to work," because <laughs> I was an earnest uh, Tennessee boy from Memphis, and he was Spike Lee. Uh, and 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 that was never going to work, uh, but 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 in eyes on the prize and 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 also the 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 gravity and 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 the in the documentary form uh, that precluded the need to suspend disbelief. There was an immediacy. Uh, there was a compelling nature that was hard to deny. A friend of mine who used to be a began his career as a stand-up comedian and ended as a head of an elite middle school or elite Quaker school in Germantown used to say, the truth is very compelling. And there was just a direct um, a, a direct window or door for, for me at the, at the very beginning. And to have all of that come from Henry, who was, uh, who was a, an eccentric person, a brilliant person, uh, and, and, and really believed, uh, I, I came to learn later that Henry's, uh, comfort zone was conflict. <laughs> and so and so he put these teams together, uh, black and white, male, female, over the supercharged material. Uh, I can't remember the last time the four of us were in the same room space together, but we really were, as, as Bennett said to me this week via email, ready for the family reunion, uh, because, <laughs> because it really was that uh, around this material. Louis Messiah was assigned with Terry K. Rockefeller for the two episodes that told the story of the Black Panthers. I asked Louis how he experienced the system of pairing up co-directors. I accepted it. I mean, it was, that was the way Henry wanted to work. Uh, there were obvious, how shall I say, contradictions to that idea. And his idea was that, okay, you know, the black person is going to take the black point of view, the white person is going to take the white point of view, the male is going to take the chauvinist point of view. And, and number one, it, it, we're not that binary, you know, I mean, they're Asian Americans or Latino, you know, they're, they're, you know things are a, a bit more complex than that. Uh, but, uh, I, but what did end up happening with the pairing is, you know, Terry had this extraordinary background as a television producer, she'd been working at Nova, extraordinarily well-organized, extraordinarily good at research, and really had a kind of incisive way of dealing with material, which in the case of, particularly with, in the case with a, a nation of law, really required this kind of clear focus, you know, uh, you know path to, to, to make the film. Uh, Terry, can I uh, bring you in and, and get your perspective on, on what that structure was like? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it was team building. I mean, Henry may have been wanting to stir up conflict, but I have to say, you know, we were a team. Louis took a lead on one show, I took a lead on the other show, but we all conferred on everything. But I have to say, really, as I was thinking back, you know, it's just 30 years. Um, my, child, my, my, my second child that was born <laughs> in the middle of producing this series just celebrated her 31st birthday. So, you know, there's a marker. Um, but, but what was extraordinary, really, I, you know, I remember so much the day that Bennett said, I think I've got a contact with O'Neill. 
And we were joyous celebrating together. Um, you know, it, it was just like, we thought we've done it. And now we were gonna be a team, you know, we were gonna pursue that and see where it went. Um, it's lovely to hear Louis compliment my organization and everything else, but quite honestly, you know, I mean, regardless of the work I'd done at NOVA prior to, to coming to, to Blackside, I'd never tackled um, content as complex and as demanding as, as what we were working on. The final member of this reunion is Bennett Singer, originally from Chicago. He was a student at Harvard when he joined Blackside. Originally, he expected to intern for two months, but it turned into a five-year job. One of Bennett's assignments was to track down FBI informant William O'Neill. My sense of the way it unfolded was, was really that Flint Taylor, who was the attorney for Fred Hampton as early as 1968, um, was our conduit. So Flint Taylor was, was the lawyer who represented um, Fred Hampton and the Panthers, um, like the $71 ice cream uh, allegation, which ended up getting Hampton convicted of, of, on a two to five year sentence. Flint Taylor was the guy, one of the guys at the People's Law Office who defended him um, and defended the Black Panthers. And um, William O'Neill was his client as early as 1969. So there was that connection between O'Neill and Flint Taylor before the raid, before any of the, you know, before. Just to be clear here, William O'Neill was Flint Taylor's client before Flint Taylor understood that he was an FBI informant. Exactly. I, I, but and I just was rereading Flint Taylor's interview with, you know, for for the Eyes Project, and and he said there were you know doubts and suspicions and questions early on um, before the raid, and there was this question about really who was William O'Neill, and I'll say that you know the interview with O'Neill and Flint Taylor and the, every interview that was done for Eyes is now archived and online at the Washington University archives, and we can you know, give people the URL for that, but it's such a gift. Anyway, Flint Taylor became the conduit. And as I remember, you know, he explained that this, you know, that William O'Neill was alive, but sort of unknown in terms of his whereabouts. And yeah, that, I guess that's where my dogged relentless, you know, and this was obviously before the days of email. I think there were a lot of phone calls and a lot of letters um, between me and Flint Taylor attempting to, to make that classic argument that this story is being told. And in this case, it was being told without historians, without pundits, without experts. It was the voices of the participants. And our argument to William O'Neill, that classic documentary argument was, do you want your version of the story to be part of the telling? And somehow that penetrated and and you know it was this very surprising and miraculous uh message back that yes william o'neill is willing to talk to you and and then there was this whole logistical dance and maybe terry and louis remember more specifically but there was this question of where would the interview happen and there were three different cities <laughs> like it was like this whole thriller almost as far as how would it happen when where would it happen and as I understand it, Manhattan was was the final decision as to the location, but and and the question of really was it the real William O'Neill who showed up for that interview was another question, which later 
Flint Taylor came, as I remember, to Blackside and looked at the footage and verified that this is the guy that, that Flint Taylor knew and recognized and verified that, you know, the, of course, the consistencies or contradictions within the story is another level of back checking and, and verification. But I think we can say that the guy who was identified as William O'Neill in the film was William O'Neill. When I first spoke with him on the telephone, he didn't want me to call from the office. So I think I actually went home and called him from my home number. I don't know why that concerned him. Um, but then he kept giving me different numbers to, to reach him at. I actually was having trouble recalling exactly where we interviewed him. It certainly was in Manhattan. I remember it was- I think it was the PBS office. Yes, I think you're right. Terry and Louie split the interviews for their two episodes. Because Terry had done more work on the Chicago chapter, she took the lead interviewing O'Neill. Henry Hampton also participated, asking questions. You can watch an hour of the raw footage on Vimeo from the Blackside Archives at Washington University. We have the link in our show notes. Louie remembers his impressions of O'Neill from that day. I didn't know what to believe. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't know if he was entirely credible. Um, within, my memories of the interview is that he slips from his use of the first person plural pronoun we was highly unclear. Was he talking about the FBI? Was he talking about the Panthers? And it, 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 it definitely threw me, it definitely threw me. Here's O'Neill in the interview using the pronoun we to mean the Panthers. Well, I said from uh, February 1969, the um, activities uh, within the party was high speed. Um, we were in our bloom. Uh, we had about 500 members. We were selling probably about 25,000 newspapers in the city of Chicago every week, or the Panther newspaper, that is. Um, we had um, various um, members of uh, our party, of the Black Panther Party, going to the colleges all over the state, speaking engagements. Donations were coming in to the tune of about $1,500, $2,000 a day. But at the same time, the Chicago police had stepped up their activities also. Later in the interview, O'Neill uses we to mean the FBI as he reflects on the death of Fred Hampton. Was there a loss? Yes. I think that uh, the slaying of Fred Hampton was definitely a loss to, uh, to black people uh, in general. Uh, he would have made a fine, he was a fine leader then, and he would have made a better leader. He was only maturing then. I mean, he was 22 years old. And uh, we tried to develop negative information to discredit him, just like we did uh, everybody else. We, meaning the FBI, I tried to come up with uh, signs of him doing drugs or, or something and uh, never could. He was clean. He was dedicated. I've had private conversations with him. Uh, we got along pretty well. Uh, for about seven months, I was his personal bodyguard. He wouldn't go anywhere without me. And I know Fred Hampton better than anybody, to tell you the truth. You know, I had spent hours on the phone trying to get him to trust me but also trying to prepare him that I wasn't gonna go easy on him. 
Um, so, you know, I remember structuring the questions so that I could get the background story before I got to the actual night of, of, of the horrible, you know, raid. Um, he, he, he did have just, you know, it was, he was very nervous. Um, he was, he was jumpy. Um, and getting him to look at me, you know, it, it wasn't easy um, and it wasn't always successful. Uh, but I think I wanted to learn what were all the forces that led him to do what he did. And, and I wanted to know if he had regrets. I wanted to know, um, I wanted people to understand that we have a society in which people are led to do things like become FBI informants, um, that that is, you know, at the center of what we have to grapple with when we think about injustice. Noland gives his impressions of O'Neill. It's interesting. I, I watched uh, the O'Neill interview again to prepare uh, to speak with you today. And when you look at it, the, the level of conflict, shifting allegiances, uh, all of those things, I thought that he was both tragic, but also emblematic and not so different. <laughs> than the inner dialogues that go on in everyday people's lives all of the time, trying to figure out, negotiate. When you look at the way that the FBI had him strung out for money on those charges, uh, the fact that he said, oh, I had money and trust uh, and I could draw down on it. I probably couldn't get a $2,000. And he meant to say I could get $2,000, but he actually said what the reality was, right? And so the piece was that he was so strung out economically, on legal charges, on all these things, he felt emblematic of the lives and realities of a great many people, uh, particularly people who are fighting in a freedom struggle or who are in otherwise compromised or enlisted mm -hmm. to work for the government, right? And so there was a piece of him that is, you could connect to. I, I, I was uh, in this room, I was the person who did not go on that shoot and it was astounding to sit in that edit room with uh, Thomas Ott, the editor of the program, and the first reels that we put up, and this is not on the Washington uh, site, O'Neill is in dark aviator sunglasses for the first couple of questions in that interview. And we were like, oh my God, is the whole interview like this? And, and then after a certain point, he described, he, he, something reassured him and he took off the, the, the glasses. And it is also telling, like there's a great moment in the interview where Terry's like, can you look at me? <laughs> Can you look at me? Can you meet my eyes? And it's really powerful. Uh, also, and, and so when you look at the, the <laughs> documentary filmmaking, all of those things also, because this was done on 10 minute rolls uh, where, where sometimes the sound rolls out, but the interview is still happening with just the audio, the wild sound. You look at even the, that interview was so incisive and I had forgotten how, how keenly Terry uh, conducted that interview to get him to refocus, to get him on his toes and say what, give him just the amount of discomfort, but also enough safety to say what he needed to say. It really was, uh, it really was instructive again to go back and say like, wow, that's really different than the way interviews are, are cut now. But 
but when you or, or conducted now, but when you look at O'Neill again, emblematic of a great many people who, when you look back over the history, I mean, you know, the Billy Holiday story is out now. How many ways people are compromised when they are just trying to reach some level of their full humanity and your full human potential? And that's the ongoing story. The interview with O'Neill took place in April 1989. Eyes on the Prize 2 began broadcasting eight months later on January 15, 1990, Martin Luther King Day. That night in Chicago, it was reported that William O'Neill ran into freeway traffic and was killed at age 40. His interview for Eyes on the Prize aired a few weeks later. Our show notes has a link to the Chicago Tribune article about his death, noting that the coroner ruled it a suicide and that O'Neill left behind a five-month-old son. But there were so many smokescreens in the life of William O'Neill that my guests can't help questioning the official story. Here's Louis Messiah. Because it was a surprise and um, unexpected, I initially did not believe it. I, I, I tend, um, I, I, I wanted more information. I wanted more information. And uh, as, you know, you know, Bennett implies somewhat, I mean, it, it, the explanation of, of suicide or something else, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or did people want the world to think that he had committed suicide or was the FBI putting him in a new witness protection program? I don't like that's another film. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's time to bring back the team. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how damaged he was at that point and and how unable he was to actually reflect on what he'd done. And 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 of course, it does raise all the issues about, you know, whether or not he actually was killed or took his own life, whether or not he did enter a new witness protection program. Um, in the end, I, I feel like I was left with more unanswered questions than being able to get answers to my questions. I would just say also, you know, in, uh, related to all of us, I, I was Googling um, Flint Taylor again, who continues to fight the good fight. And there's an, a, a really long piece that he just wrote a couple of weeks ago about new documentation linking Hoover himself to, um, to the raid and to O'Neill's role, which was only recently released, these 200 um, files so the, the like the, the the legacy and the epilogue to the story is very much alive you know just as of a couple of weeks ago with this new revelation about direct evidence from Hoover himself approving and celebrating this neutralization to use the COINTELPRO term of of this piece of of the Black Panther story and so you know I think regardless of of what happened on that day with O'Neill's alleged death, you know, the, the bigger questions about, or there have been some new answers actually to some of the questions about how high up did this go and what was Hoover's role and what, you know, what was the overall message in terms of government repression of the civil rights movement, which as Terry and Louie are saying was the heart of this film. 
And I would add to that, it wasn't only Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers that were considered subversive. It was Martin Luther King and non, you know, like it was anybody who was fighting for racial justice or progressive politics who was in some sense considered subversive and un-American and in need of monitoring or even neutralization. I would just also add, you know, all of us, but I think probably for Bennett and I, because we were uh, just coming out of college, it was a real eye-opener. We were almost sitting in those offices with these FBI documents in our laps, reading stuff and saying like, oh God, they were going to squirt laxatives in the oranges at the Gary co convention to, to keep everybody from meeting because they would all be in their hotel bathrooms. So, I mean, everything from laxatives to keep a conference from happening to the murder slash neutralization of, uh, of a 19-year-old, 20-year-old Panther leader uh, in Chicago, right? And so the range, so that when you hear that uh, that William O'Neill is killed running across the Dan Ryan the day after the broadcast, you're thinking that feels like something that somebody would write, not something that, that would actually happen. In 1969, Jade Gerhoover declared that the Black Panther Party, without question, represents the greatest threat to internal security of the country. Hoover had the power of the U.S. government to shape public opinion. Twenty years later, Eyes on the Prize showed the Panthers in a different light. Episode 9, directed by Louis and Terry, is subtitled Power. Black is beautiful, free Said I want free, free Panther leader Elaine Brown talks about the group's program to serve free breakfast to children. The idea was uh, obviously twofold for the specific purpose of serving those people who were directly benef benefited by our programs, but also secondarily to influence the minds of people to understand not only that the Black Panther Party was providing them this, but more importantly, that if they could get food, that maybe they would want clothing and maybe they want housing, and maybe they'd want land and maybe they would ultimately want some abstract thing called freedom. Quite recently, I, I, I was talking with Elaine Brown and uh, realizing that, that what led people to the Panther Party um, really was a belief that change, you know, sort of revolutionary change in this society was possible. And that, and what you really see with Fred Hampton is, it is really about love of, of the people, love of black people, but a love that you can see in his ability to form coalition. It's, it's about love of people. It comes out of this deep humanist kind of impulse. And I think that when one is clear about that, then I, I think one can understand the Panthers. I would just add, um, you know, what I, what I loved about the way Louis constructed the, the story of the Panthers in power was while you saw the images of the men with guns, ultimately the meaning of the story was that it was about serving the community. It was about using art to convey powerfully the messages of what can happen to a community, what can happen uh, to individuals who, who work collectively, not only 
do you see so much more than what a cliched version of the Panthers, you know, might have been up to that time. But you saw the incredible role that women played in the Panther movement. And Elaine Brown, um, you know, it is one of several women who, who, you know, took great responsibility for what could be a revolution, what, what aimed to be a revolutionary movement. Um, and to some extent, I think the vision of that movement continues. I want to thank my guests for speaking with me, Louis Messiah, Terry K. Rockefeller, Bennett Singer, and Nolan Walker. Our show notes contain more information about their work. We also have multiple links to find Eyes on the Prize, the raw footage of William O'Neill, and related films, books, and articles. Thanks to John Else, who wrote the indispensable book about the making of Eyes on the Prize called True South. You can hear him discuss it on episode 40 of Pure Nonfiction. Thanks to the filmmakers of Judas and the Black Messiah for stirring up this history in a fresh way. Finally, thanks to our podcast team, series producer Hannah Norden-Swan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.